Hi there, I'm Emma Kiesling. And I'm Sydney Allen. And this is Uncovering Publishing, the UCL Publishing Podcast. Today we have a really interesting guest. Chris Liu is the complex ebook producer for Penguin. He had a really interesting journey into the publishing industry, which we'll let him tell in his own words. But first, welcome, Chris. Hello. We're going to start off with our icebreakers, which has been really fun so far. Uh, we're very excited to hear yours. The first icebreaker is your favorite book to give as a gift. Now the pressure's on because I was looking at this before because I've heard the other podcasts and I knew this was the first question and <laughs> I've never had a single book that I give to lots of different people. I always pick books that are that match that person. So for instance, I have a friend who loves space and I got her a copy of Apollo Remastered, which came out not that long ago. Beautiful photography. Um, I also have a friend who has rescued chickens and so I have got them a copy of Chicken Boy which is about to drop I think any day now should have probably checked the pub date before I came on air and uh, it was one that I worked on recently actually and um, Big Panda and Tiny Dragon was another book that I gave as a gift a little while ago beautiful artwork again so that I think that was my sister and um Yes. So I think I don't often give fiction as gifts unless I have a very strong idea of what fiction that person likes. Usually I find it easier to give nonfiction aligning with what that Actually, person Actually, I think likes. that's a really smart way to approach giving a book as a gift. Um, I know that I was absolutely panicked for a Christmas book exchange over mm-hmm. whether or not the person would like my favorite fiction novel because they were a philosophy major in undergrad. That's big brain. Mm. I don't know if she's going to like my little fiction book, but she was a huge historical fiction fan. So it ah. worked out perfectly. You see, now if you know that, then that okay, would be a good reason. But doing the nonfiction approach based on interests, mm. I think it is smart. a kind of fun sport trying to figure out what book, like as a book person, like what book would be good for you. But then what gets frustrating, because I'm so much better at recommending fiction, because I read so much fiction. Mm, I'm better at recommending fiction, but I don't buy But like, as what I'm saying, if it's like around the holidays and it's someone who doesn't read a lot, then often fiction isn't what they're going to be You know what I mean? And then it's like, I feel like I'm shoving reading down your throat, (laughs) which is not not the idea. All right, let's move on to the second question. What is your favorite book to see on the screen? Is this a book that has already been converted for screen? It can be or... either or both. I think the adaptation I've been most impressed with is the film version of Fight Club in terms of adapting um, from print to big screen, because with the exception of the last five minutes, it's a really good <laughs> adaptation. Um, and I felt I did it really well. And it's become a cult classic for a reason. Did you Did you like the book? I did. Um, I was quite new to that sort of fiction at the point when I read it, and it is written to be shocking, um, and it's also a writing style I hadn't come across before. So I was really intrigued, and I read it really quickly. Interesting. I don't think I've read the book. I see a lot of jokes about, like, bros taking Fight Club the wrong way. Yeah. (laughs) And like, oh, the message and the point of the book is not what people are taking away from No, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) But I've never cracked open the book, so I I don't actually know. Well, so the next question will be interesting then. What is your favorite media at the moment that isn't a book? Uh, I do have some more interesting answers to that. There is 
Um, the, there is a film that I did really like that I saw in the last year or so, which was Everything Everywhere All at Once. I've heard so much about this. Yeah. I it, think Polly mentioned this too. She did. I, oh. I adored it. You should have watched it. <laughs> <laughs> so although I don't watch a huge amount of TV or film, I do dip into video games every now and then. And I have really enjoyed Hades and Hollow Knight in the last year. Yeah. Um, Hades has got a very popular following, but Hollow Knight's storytelling is really really good and i really like narrative storytelling through alternate media like it i'm sorry what is it called again hollow Hollow knight Knight. Um, is it pretty it's very pretty i i like pretty games if you like pretty games another similar game is called ori and the blind forest which is beautiful narrative first five minutes are very sad and very um very beautifully presented game and very fun to play uh, and one unusual recommendation there is a sports writer called John Bois and I'm not usually very into sports writing but he also has um, this bizarre fusion of like sports sci-fi optimistic fiction and uh, it's told in like this mixed media format online it's called 177 17- uh, 17,776 after the year in which it is set in a future when humans are immortal and they just live their day-to-day lives trying to deal with eternity together and it's told from the perspective of satellites that have gained sentience and watch the football <laughs> the American football that is because he is an American sports writer and it's completely bizarre that sounds bizarre but it's really captivating all of my niches it's funny i did actually think it would be a good recommendation oh, yeah. for that reason because i've heard you talking about sports in the previous podcast it was basketball <laughs> no i follow football too. yeah man my city actually has a football an american football team so it, you know unless we're talking about soccer football in which case <laughs> i'm working on it i'm working on it but I do highly recommend that. It's been a little while since I last read it, but it's, it's great. Cool. Um, let's move to our last question, which is if you were a commissioning editor, what comp would make you jump on the book immediately? I think anything that was compared to China Miaville's writing. Okay. Um, he's often compared to Neil Gaiman because their themes are similar, but their approaches are very different. He, where Neil Gaiman has like a more whimsical fairy tale-esque quality it might have a dark edge yes but in the same way that old fairy tales have dark edges um china Miaville's writing does take the same themes but it has like an almost like dirty gritty edge to it it's so for, for instance perdido street station which is I think might be his best work i've heard of that one um it is amazing but it will um, it will make you cry and then kick you while you're down. So just a warning. Um, that, that makes me want to read that. <laughs> Is that bad? But yeah, the, with Perdido Street Station, it's set in a fantasy setting, but like there is potions refuse in the streets and there's like magical toxic waste. And it it feels like, a city in all of the worst ways as well as all of the best ways mm. which is something that is not the focus of Neil Gaiman's writing yeah. so 
quite like that. Bit of the show, The Boys, which everyone I know tells me to watch, and I still haven't watched it. But it's the one that has the idea of like the super. It's like superheroes are around, but what if they were actual people, and how would they navigate the morality of being more powerful, and how would the government crack down, and all of this, like the stuff that should be coming along with it. And apparently, it's really good, um, in like a much greater way than like Marvel movies are, you know. Mm. All right, right. yeah, jumping into the rest of it. Um, Could you tell us how you found yourself in publishing? So I didn't initially think I was going to end up in publishing. I did want to be a publisher when I was maybe about 13 or 14, but I was very good at the sciences and I studied physics when I went to university. Unfortunately, I, due to personal circumstances, I couldn't complete my degree and I had to spend some time just building myself back up afterwards Um, and without a degree in the sciences is very difficult to get any work in the sciences at all so at that point I realized I would need to scrap my plans and start again and I wanted to do something I thought I'd actually enjoy so I went back to my teenage self and decided to really go for a publishing career Um, especially since I think at that point I had just had um, I think about a year before that the need for a degree for publishing jobs had been taken away by most of the big publishers so it was a really good time to to attempt that for someone in my position so yeah I spent 10 straight months applying to things Um, I I didn't realize that they lifted that yeah that that was really interesting i mean i think it sounds i mean it is really impressive to keep going at it for 10 months applying to things going to events looking at things reading things Mm. you know what i mean Mm -hmm. that's tough well what stuck out the fact that they lifted that need for the degree i find that so interesting because i've heard that um in publishing when they're hiring it really sticks out to them when you have a background that's not English lit or history which tend to be like I know I'm a history background um so the fact that they kind of lifted that it probably brought in such a nice kind of maybe boost of diverse backgrounds that they were looking for I think that definitely did help um I'm not in HR so I couldn't tell you any any details on that um I what I've heard in general from speaking to people at events and and other other things like that is that um, when you pick people who are from outside of that bubble you get very different opinions as to what will sell and it allows a lot more diversity in what is published which is a good thing and leads to some really interesting titles definitely cool definitely really important Okay, so, so far on your publishing journey, we are up until you've spent all this time going to events, you've been applying to things, and then where do you end up? I was starting to run out of energy. That was a really rough 10 months for me. Yeah, I can only imagine. And just as I was about to go on break for a bit and try something a bit more local, I think I had actually done that. I just got some local part-time work to keep me going for a while, and I was going to take a a break of a couple of months before going back to publishing applications and then penguin random house got in touch with me um because i had applied to their scheme internships and i 
they contacted me to say that I got to the first stage um, interview and it kind of snowballed from, from there. I managed to get a place on the internship scheme and I was assigned to the BBC audio team, which was fantastic. What did you do with the BBC audio team? Can you? I was part of the editorial track okay. on the scheme internship. And so we had like, I best, I think the best way to describe it is that the interns had like a base camp where they were assigned to an actual working team, but they had this whole um, like calendar of training related things and experiences that weren't strictly related to that team. So I was doing um, like some editorial assistant work in the BBC audio team, but I wasn't a full editorial assistant about a third to a half of my time was like, especially at the beginning, um, was doing editorial training, was going to um, different courses that had been set up by Penguin to teach us about different skill sets and to introduce us to different people around the company to see what happened in different parts. I love that. I think that exposure to all of the different departments is so special. It sounds like, yeah, like a survey of the whole company. Right. As opposed to being super pigeonholed into one thing. Yeah, like helping to find your fit, Mm -hmm. you know? I definitely took that approach when I I was doing it and went out of my way to speak to even more people. (laughs) So (laughs) I I quite enjoyed that and I got a lot out of the experience. Amazing. All right. So, and now you're working as the complex ebook complex ebooks producer producer yes right <laughs> oh that is a title <laughs> i'm technically on secondment so um i'm covering someone who's currently on parental leave okay. um but my position that i got immediately before that was for the ebook coordinator on the same team and uh when my colleague comes back from parental leave i will be dropping back to that role Well, can you kind of walk us through the process? I guess you've got both sides now. Could you walk us through the process of creating an ebook, just in general terms, how one would go about doing that? Most authors are writing, I assume, on Word with their manuscript. Would that be standard? And then you turn it into an EPUB, and then I can tell you, I can tell you what I know about how ebooks are made, and you can like help me from there because we've had a class. Oh, on it. Did I miss that one? You did miss that one, Sydney. <laughs> so, with regards to your question about how an ebook is made, structurally speaking, yeah. an ebook is a self contained website. It's written in the exact same way as a website, um, but whereas a website will point to things on the internet on other people's computers, all of the signposts within, like the links and things within an ePub will point back into the same folder. So you have everything self-contained, which makes it really portable and you can take it wherever you want. And then that's um, compressed in a similar way to a zip file, but it's not a zip file, it's an ebook file. And that is what an ebook is. Okay. So that is structurally <laughs> what one is. In terms of like the production process, um, editorial do their thing, they have the manuscript, it's all like ready for print. And at that point, it is very easy to convert those final files into the same format that would be used for writing an ebook. So it's changed from like an InDesign file or however they want 
um, which is usually in the design file, to be honest. And then it's changed from that to HTML, XHTML and CSS. Okay. It is now ringing a bell. Thank you. <laughs> for context, for one of our classes, we're sort of analyzing different ways that authors and readers interact with books. And one of the sort of weekly assignments is to do a teardown of an EPUB or there was something, or just a website and looking at the HTML on a website and looking at it for accessibility, what are the different parts of it, how much CSS is used um, versus like semantic HTML and, and stuff like that and sort of just like trying to make observations, um, which I think is, is kind of interesting that it's written in the same language as just like a normal, basically like web page. Yeah, I, I find that quite cool. It also means that it's quite easy. It's part of what makes them so portable and why they can be viewed across so many platforms is because it's such a, such a commonly used mm -hmm. way of encoding the information. Yeah. Like sometimes I'll have like, if I have a friend or if I know someone who has an unpublished like document and they're like, oh, can you read this for me and tell me what you think or whatever. I'd be like, sure, send me the EPUB because I will then just read it on my phone because my nice Apple iPhone and eBooks on there will just show it to me so nicely and I can customize it however I want. But they're sending you an EPUB file? Yeah. Okay, see, because I usually, when I was doing um, just editorial work, I would have people send me just a Microsoft Word document and then I'd say open through Kindle. Oh. And it would kind of turn it into it That's in cool. a Kindle format. And so mm. I always was just like, do you just kind of press the button and boom, because I've been able to do that. Well, mine doesn't um, turn it into a Mobi because I know Kindle uses Mobi, oh, which maybe is that's, different. That's you have to do like a yeah. send to Kindle situation. Right. Mine is the Apple eBooks app, which just uses the oh. EPUB file. Okay. I don't know, Chris, chime in if we're saying really <laughs> ignorant things. <laughs> Mobi is um, Mobi has been used by Amazon for quite a long time. There is now support for EPUB files on Amazon devices. So. Okay. I did not know that. Um, all right, well, so there's kind of, there's what an ebook is, which is really helpful. Now, you said originally you were working as an ebook coordinator. Yeah. In that role, would you say that that's more project management compared to the complex ebook producer or mixed yeah. bag? There is a project management element, but that's more relating it to the schedule and mm. checking that things are running on time. Uh, but a large part of the ebook coordinator role is more about quality control and checking files before they go on sale to make sure that they look the way they're supposed to. There's, um, when you're converting from one format to another, which is what you're doing, converting from a print format and all of the pros and cons of that to, um, to an EPUB format and all of the pros and cons of that format, there's room for errors to creep in, and that's what the quality control is for, is to make sure that it looks the way it's supposed to and it behaves in the way it's supposed to across multiple platforms. Um, and even when the reader settings are adjusted by the user. Okay. Sure Thoughts on like, okay, this is this is more like, like format related. Thoughts on you know, you can like flip pages as if it were a book, 
horizontally or you oh, can yeah. scroll and I feel like younger generations want to scroll because or even just people who listen to who listen people who read a lot of fan fiction or like oh, just hilarious. reading long form articles want to just scroll versus people who want to read and flip the page you know that's a that's a good question um so there are two types of e- ebook files there is reflowable style files which can be sorry there are two styles of ebook files that you can come across there is fixed layout which is similar to a pdf it's not it's not constructed in the exact same way as a pdf but it behaves in a very similar way and you'll see this with books that are when you're converting a book that's very heavily designed into digital format, you're more likely to see it, especially on things like graphic novels, for instance. Mm. You might see a fixed layout book, and that is meant to be a one-to-one um, translation from print to digital. Um, reflowable titles are the more common ones, and in reflowable titles, the elements on a page can move around depending on the size of the screen that you're viewing on or the user settings. So like if someone changes the font size, everything will just shift around to suit. And I think that's what you're talking about here because you can have the option to vertical scroll on those sorts of files. And from from a person in my position who's making, um, who's producing the files, that both options have to be available. So we cannot depend on any specific page format when working in reflowable because the items can move. Um, You're more focused on the order of content rather than the exact placement. Um, But for, um, if you then turn on vertical scrolling, it's... That actually sounds really complex. Yeah. Because I haven't done that much like like HTML and CSS where you're using like like grids and, and different columns and things to make things fit whatever size screen it is. But I can then imagine when like you're adding elements and it can flow in any different way that it can get kind of That's lot. why the order is focused on yeah. more than the precise layout. Yeah. Um, you the aim is to set things up in a way that it doesn't matter in which way it's viewed it keeps the general gist of what you're going for. It communicates the original intent in a way that can shift to suit different devices and still look great. Yeah. And that's essentially what I'm intending to do when I produce uh, a complex ebook. One of the things that surprised me when I was looking at like HTML and CSS is how much of it is actually semantic and like being good at communicating like the meaning of what you want each thing to do which I didn't expect when I was like, this is going to be so hard and sciencey. I know that you're a science person, but <laughs> but as an English major, I was like, I can't do this. And then I was like, wait, it makes a lot more sense than I thought it would. Yeah, it's because but this is also why it works so well with accessibility-based um, platforms, because you're looking at what is being communicated. Like, what actually is this thing doing? If something is a header, it's because it's outlining a piece of content. Right. Um, and you're giving it a title. So when you're looking at semantic HTML, you're just stating the purpose behind each object on the page. So what is unique about eBooks that makes it different from, say, building a web page? 
the self-contained element is the biggest like um change in terms of like format how it's not format that's not what i'm the the package yeah the the self-contained element is the biggest like technical difference in terms of how they're made because of the fact that ebooks have to be compatible across a wide range of devices and platforms that can stretch that can be quite old um we're more limited in what we can use if we want to target a wider demographic of readers so if you were to look inside um an ebook that's is targeting these older devices you might go wow this is this looks old and the reason why is because it has to be um it has to be read by as many devices as possible yeah okay so that actually brings up our next question um in the industry in general do you find a divide between generations i'm sure i can actually say much interesting on that because i don't know the sales data it could just be your opinion like do you think different generations can like maybe consume books in different ways i think so but i don't have um, a strong opinion on which generation reads yeah. in which way how do you how do you consume books a mixture of physical and ebook did you do you find that you read more ebooks now since you're working in that than you did originally yes oh interesting i, I read more ebooks now than I did before I was working in ebooks, but I was still reading ebooks before I got the role. Uh, in particular, they're great for commutes because I, mm-hmm. with my physical books, I like them to be kept nice. <laughs> and so having them in a bag and yeah. taken to and from work or whatever is not great for their um, continued lifespan. See, I agree with portability, but not because of keeping the book nice, because I do not treat my books that well, but because it's just <laughs> annoying to carry like a big book around with you it and it can be heavy. on my phone. Mm. I got so much judgment about this in one of our classes the other day when someone asked like, oh, like who here like reads books on their phone? And I was like, hand up like me, I do. And like no one else did. And I was like, you're all liars. I'm definitely, I'm a majority ebook reader. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, genuinely it just because it's so simple and then yes. I like to walk around the house I'll yes. read it on my couch then I'll go in the kitchen and I could be chopping vegetables and swiping through that exactly like, <laughs> yeah, I, do, I do that as well I have a yeah. friend who reads on the treadmill she'll just have it up I wish I had that kind of <laughs> I would break my wrist or ankle or something I mean she's not running she's just walking yeah. still <laughs> that sounds complex um but I, I do love it. Also, I love to read at night and then if the lights are off, yes. you know, because I want to still be in bedtime zone. It's nice also if you're flipping from side to side, you don't have to re-angle the phone. I just find the ebook so helpful for my day-to-day life. Now that you've described more uses, I think I actually read the, the balance in my head of mm-hmm. ebooks to physical is actually even more heavily shifted towards ebook than I originally thought. Because <laughs> you just described a lot of things that I do and just haven't <laughs> um, Whereas like with physical books now, I mainly do it if I want to like read, it's mainly for me reading fiction as an experience. So, like oh. I'll read a physical book while having a nice cup of coffee or in the bath or in bed. That's but nice. when I'm 
meeting literally anything else it will almost always be digital i totally agree it's like an experience to like have it in your hand and you're like the activity is reading the book mm. and oh that's an interesting two, take yeah sorry go ahead sorry <laughs> <laughs> i treat them as two different experiences yeah and i also will get a physical book if i'm like i want to be able to go back and i want to annotate mm. this because you can highlight and annotate in ebooks and i do do that sometimes but i like being able to just like write just rogue comments in the margins you know, physical books. I'm embarrassed to say, but until I joined this publishing program, I did not realize how many people annotated a book, and I'd never done it. Not like for. I think for that's quite normal. Fiction. I I think that's quite normal. I don't but, think a lot of people. Annotate. Okay, because I feel like <laughs> I'm always seeing everybody annotating their books in the program, and I just publishing I don't majors. Tend to do that. Publishing majors do not make it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a general reader group. Fair. <laughs> I have to say that um, I really didn't like writing in books until relatively, but for most of my life. Um, but it was what I was saying earlier about if I'm taking a physical book with me somewhere. I mean, I you said you like yeah to keep it. Nice you like to keep them nice, to, yeah. To have an ebook, if it's going to be jostled about. Do you know the only time I've written in a book, and I still have this somewhere, but it's the fifth Harry Potter and. Oh, I was so young. And I went and I drew a picture of each of the characters. So not even annotating. I was doodling. How old were you? Oh my gosh. I when did I don't know what year that came out. I feel like I was maybe in like fifth or sixth grade. So I'm just imagining like little stick figure Harry they Potter. Were, their feet were circles and Hedwig just looks <laughs> That's so cute. It it is funny. Um because whenever I do go back and I look at it and just think, wow, that's from that facial expression, I can't tell if Hedwig looks adorable oh, so or bad. terrible. <laughs> Terrifying. <laughs> but like if you're Sydney's mom, you're like, oh, she drew a really bad owl. I feel like we've got that Do you one. want to talk about the the publishing industry in general? And if you think like the industry moving forward has any blind spots looking into the future or like areas that it's not paying a lot of attention to? areas we should start a company because <laughs> a lot of our themes in the past have been about like disrupting and things that have mm. disrupted the industry or maybe aren't being thought of about enough if that makes sense conversely we could talk about are there any um programs that penguin have that have kind of helped the blind spot in the industry where they're where they've brought it to light I think that the diversity schemes that Penguin have done in the last few years have genuinely been quite helpful. And I'm not just saying that because I was on one of them. Because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I have actually... Very helpful for you. Very helpful for me. <laughs> um, but more generally, around the time of that, um, I was seeing more books published from a wider variety of perspectives than I have ever seen mm. before. And... I feel like in the last few years, the kind of the breadth of topics has grown. Um, and I think part of that is because of the what you were saying earlier when you're talking about getting publishing work and you were saying that people look for backgrounds other than publishing um, because they want the wider variety of perspectives. And mm -hmm. I think that's a direct result of that practice across, across the industry. Yeah, I when when our program first started, uh, one of our tutors asked like, 
what are some genres you think or like types of books you think there could be a gap in the market for or you would want to see more of and a lot of the things that everyone said even just in September I've been seeing out more you know that's actually so true since we've touched on it Mm -hmm. it's almost like somebody was hidden in our class listening some commissioning editor because I swear the books have started to come out um so the gaps queer sci-fi fantasy exactly yeah I is like a weird niche genre that I really like Mm -hmm. or um Dark Academia has been like a glut and I'm almost like, I read one bad Dark Academia and I was like, oh, sorry, go ahead. (laughs) I remember you saying that you wanted Mm. to see more Dark Academia. uh... Yeah, and then I got inundated because everyone was like, oh, she's Dark Academia girl. And I was like, (laughs) good lord. Well, on the topic of genres and books, are there any fun projects that you are working on or fun ones that you've completed that you found to be particularly cool? You probably uh, guessed this from the initial icebreaker question where I was talking about the kind of books that I've given as gifts. Mm-hmm. But I um, I do really like pretty books mm-hmm. and um, I've been working on some recently. There's a book on fermentation that is come, either just come out or is about to come out like, around now called Cabbages and Kimchi. Ooh. And it is of cabbages and kimchi, I should say. <laughs> okay. And it has the most gorgeous illustrations and I really enjoyed like getting to see them all as I was working on it. Yeah, so That's like for nice. an ebook, how do you make a really pretty ebook? Is that hard to integrate illustrations? Cause I know sometimes maps in because again fantasy. Fantasy. <laughs> oh, so frustrating. I want to be able to click on it and then it comes up and I can like explore. Which some of them are, but some of them are not. I will say I wouldn't think to buy like a pretty book as mm. an ebook. Mm-hmm. Just That's like my true. mind, because I would want it as like a coffee table book almost. Mm. A lot of the pretty books that I have worked on are also cookbooks, which are very useful ah, yes. as um, in the digital format. If you want to, you have to access lots of recipes. That's so true. And you want to have a nice white clean surface if you splash something on it. <laughs> um, but yeah, with um, with those cabbages and kimchi, it, is, it has recipes in it which is part of the reason why it came across my desk. Um, I had never actually said that earlier, did I? The majority of <laughs> things that I work on, the large proportion is cookbooks because as the complex ebook producer, I tend to see the stuff that is more has more complicated layout. Mm-hmm. And cookbooks quite often fall into that category. So that makes sense. Just yeah. mentioning that. I remember growing up, we had this old, old, old joy of cooking cookbook physical and the pages like had like layers of fat and like just <laughs> cooking grease you know, but we loved it i was gonna it. say i was like i actually love that um i feel like my cookbooks they'll always just naturally open to my favorite recipe because it's covered in flour Aww. or like smudge marks so it just if you open it it's Plus. like boom here's that lasagna recipe that you keep coming to that's so. great <laughs> but if you like to use lots of different recipes and you don't like to get your books dirty that is a good reason to get them on that format right now i recently moved and cookbooks those are some heavy books to travel with Mm -hmm. so it would be nice if i still had them all as an ebook version because i'm texting my mom for pictures of them all the time um so that's another great reason to get a digital ebook to answer your original question about um 
translating that to digital. A lot of it is about layout. Um, I know that the layout moves. I've mentioned this earlier with reflowable, um, when we were talking about reflowable format, but there is some control. You can, you can get some quite interesting layouts. You can do things like floating images so that the text wraps around it and you can do other bits and pieces like that. I can imagine that would be difficult. Well, I was curious, do you know, with like um, a cookbook, I'm imagining if I have that in my kitchen and I'm reading it as an, an ebook, I would probably do it on my iPad um, mm. rather than, or a computer rather than my phone, just because I feel like I'd wanted it a little bit bigger for me. And I have my, I keep my text just like a 75 year old, um, quite large. Do you have like access to data of whether people are reading the majority on like which device? I am. Um, that would definitely come under the sales data. Ah, okay. Um, because like if you're using an iPad, then you're buying the book for the Apple Store usually um, oh, and things like that. Okay. So I haven't seen that, so yeah. I can't tell you, but um, I'm pretty certain that like the company is aware nice. of okay. breakdown. Um, to touch back on what you were saying just now, uh, what I was saying about layout and what you were saying about different platforms. so. Part of what I do is um, I look at something called graceful degradation. So let's say you have a brand new iPad and the book will appear in a certain way on the iPad and it looks fantastic, but then you want to look at it on your phone and it's a narrow screen. There are tricks that you can use so that when it breaks, it breaks in the exact way that you planned for and it still looks good. And that's yeah. essentially what graceful degradation is. So like for instance, um, if you had a cookbook page, um, like several of the cookbooks that I've worked on recently have got like an ingredients column down one side and then the method next to it. On a phone, that might not be so great because- Two columns be, on a phone yeah. is tough. Yeah. So it's designed in such a way that on a phone, you'll just see it as a single column of text with the ingredients first, followed by the method. Yeah. Um, and that, practice of graceful degradation is part of what I look into. So if I'm doing something that looks more complex in certain circumstances, then when it can't work for whatever reason, then whatever the fallback is will also look good. Yeah. When you're um, working on like a new book, would you have the print version finished before you create an ebook from it, or is that kind of done side by side, or do you kind of need to see what those design aspects are? Um, more or less. So, there, with the more tricky layouts and the more complex books, sometimes it's better to be involved earlier in the process. But in general, I see the files when they're ready to go to print. Oh, wow. Okay. And that is when I look at how to translate it from one format to another. Okay. So that do you is there any specific stuff you have to do when you're creating ebooks as far as disability um or making them more accessible yes so um there are accessibility guidelines that usually are related to website creation so you can see them on like the w3c website mm -hmm. for instance there's a list of guidelines for making websites more accessible and we try to follow a similar approach. Um, 
we want to make it so that text can be read out on a screen reader in a way that makes sense. Um, we want to make it so that if a user needs to change their device settings to make it easier to read, so they want to increase their font size or they want to change it to night mode, that all of the content is still there and it will still work and they're still able to view that and in a way that's comfortable to them. So that is part of our considerations for when we work on ebooks. Yeah, and like even I love those abilities on like the different ebook devices because sometimes I'll be lying in my bed at 8 a.m. and I want it to be really big so I can just... That's my like permanent setting. <laughs> it's just giant text. <laughs> yeah, I, I put the font size up on my own things. As and well. then when I'm on the tube and I'm reading something I don't want anyone else to be able to read over my shoulder, I put it really small. I do that too, and then I can't read it. And I just end up putting it away. I I'll angle my body and everything. I was curious. So there is this book I was reading, and I, like the text color, I had it set to dark mode, and typically the text is white. And then all of a sudden, it switched to like a light blue, and then it I went have back ones to that it. Do that. And I don't. Yeah, I don't understand why. Would there be a reason for that? Without more context, I couldn't tell you in detail. But my, yeah. my best guess is that the way that dark mode is implemented on some devices, it uses a mathematical formula to check the contrast between the background and the text. Mm -hmm. You can actually see this on websites online. That, um, things I think um, if you search for color contrast checker, you'll see examples of what I'm talking about. Um, you'll also see this in the W3C guidelines if you look at their advice on contrast for accessibility purposes. Mm -hmm. So there's an actual formula, formula that looks at the two colors and figures out what the contrast ratio is between them. And mm -hmm. when you are um, looking at it on a device and it has to change the color because what you said you change the background, it will try and pick a color that um, is legible. And it, so it may use that formula to pick the color. How for, for the blog that I run, if you put certain color combinations, it will literally prompt you and say, this color combination might be difficult for some readers. Yes. And that is using Would you like to change it? We were just talking about it. Oh. It's more connections between websites and EPUBs. Yeah, plug, plug for, the, for my blog. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we have anything else. Is there anything yeah. else about... Um, ebooks or your reading or anything that's coming up that you wanted to share? So I mentioned this when I was talking about gifts that I gave to people and I said that there was a book called Chicken Boy that I worked on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed working that and I want, I'm looking forward to just sequestering off some time so that I can just sit down and just read it properly because the bits I've seen I've really enjoyed. The illustrations and photography in it are beautiful. Chickens are really cute. And no. the text is... Just, uh, it's basically the the author Arthur Parkinson. He um, it's an autobiographical approach. So he's talking about his childhoods and um, there were a lot of chickens on in in his life. He grew up. Yeah. So I've enjoyed the bits and pieces of text I've seen, but because my focus is more on layout and I can't read in detail every book that I'm working on, I'm looking forward to having the time to actually sit down and read it properly because I've enjoyed the bits and pieces that I've seen so far. I'm cool. reading like just a clip from the, the blurb and the writing style sounds so nice. Mm, yeah, I'm just really enjoying it. 
the other book I've been reading recently is Naomi Novik's The Golden Enclaves. I love Naomi Novik. I love Naomi Novik's writing as well. Um, I'm very, very hit and miss with YA in general. Um, but Naomi Novik for me is hits the target every time. Um, <laughs> the Golden Enclaves is the third book in a trilogy called the Scholar Mouse Trilogy about. Um, it's about... It's like a magic school, right? It is a magic school, oh, but it's yeah. a completely different approach to that I've seen in anywhere else. It's like an almost steampunk school that's like hanging in the void, created by like London magical engineers in the 1800s, I think. And um, um, it has the... I mean, I know that this particular trope has appeared in several other things as well, including Percy Jackson, but like the magical creatures can smell out... Um, magical users and will come to eat them essentially and so you have to be protected until you're old enough to protect yourself and they get sent off to this magic school but the magic school doesn't work properly and lots of children die (laughs) i'm so excited to read it i'm saving it for my next like big like fantasy when i read my next fantasy series one of my favorite fantasy series of all time is the temeraire series that she wrote yes i want to oh it's but so good. Those books have made me want to dive back in because I've only read the first one of the Temerary books. They literally get better. Yes. <laughs> and I loved it, but I didn't have access to the later ones at that point in time because I think I was, um, I didn't have, I wasn't in the same place long enough to really like have a, a library mm-hmm. at that point. Um, but I can definitely go back to them now and reading the Scroll of has reminded me and I really want to. And I will say the narrator for the Temeraire audiobooks is so good. Ooh. And I've, I've the way he does Temeraire's voice, Temeraire's a dragon. I'm, I'm a big dragon now. fan. Anyway. Well, okay. Those are pretty cool projects. We'll include all of them in the house notes. Um, I think that's all we have. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank all you right. for me. I'm gonna do a little bit, a little outro because we have a bit of house cleaning. Um, we don't have much, but we did want to announce that this season of Uncovering Publishing will be ending at the end of March, and we plan to start again when the fall rolls around with an exciting roster of new guests and awesome topics. Couple more, uh, but yeah, we're winding down. Yeah, thank you. All right.